Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. And I'm Emma Vigeland. This week on Ring of Fire, Angelo Cursone, president of Media Matters, will join us to discuss Trump's permanent ban from Twitter and other social media companies and right-wing media's reaction to big tech's crackdown on far-right misinformation. And Heather Digby-Parton will join us to discuss the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Become a member of this podcast over at rofpodcast.com. It's your support that keeps this show going. And don't forget, you can watch the interviews from Ring of Fire podcast on the Majority Report YouTube channel. Head over to youtube.com slash Sam Cedar. Here to break down this week's news, Heather Digby-Parton from Salon and the popular blog Hullabaloo. So, Heather, um, here we are a week out now from a little bit more than a week, I guess, uh, out from the storming of the Capitol by I don't know how to characterize these people. Donald Trump uh, supporters, I guess, uh, the Republican base, I think, you know, based upon I think that was the message that we got from Republicans um, this past week was uh, in the way that they voted for impeachment that they also perceive these people as their voters as well. And um, and uh, so here we are. Donald Trump is now. And, you know, I don't know if we had if we had to guess last week at this time on on Thursday, the day after, if we would have said he'll be impeached by this time next week. I, I don't not sure we would have said that. I'm not sure I would have uh, agreed with that. And uh, but here we are. Yeah. Donald Trump a superlative, the um, first president in the history of America to be impeached twice. It's amazing. And I'm not sure we didn't actually talk about that last week. We may have actually the, the, the possibility of impeachment. I could be wrong, but no, I agree with you. I wouldn't have, uh, honestly, it happened with blazing speed by, by congressional standards. You have to admit, I mean, that's, it's pretty amazing that they, that they actually managed to get that done. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we were talking about what, you know, where this was coming from, I think at the time, maybe we didn't talk about specifically whether we thought it was going to happen, but, you know, it was coming from uh, members of the caucus. I think people had been absolutely terrified yep. by what happened. And as we've seen over the course of the past week, as more and more stories of what happened, and I think there's still more to come because I think there's security reasons why they haven't talked about some of what happened. It was a terrifying, horrifying experience. I think people did think there was a possibility that they could have died in that. Mm -hmm. And and there's no doubt that they could have, because that was a, a wild, mad riot that was going on inside the, the Capitol. And, you know, people, even if they hadn't intended to kill people, and I think we have reason to believe there were some who did, but even just in the crowd, um, that the idea that something really, really horrific could have happened. So... You know, that probably is what pushed them, you know, as much as anything, I can, which you can't blame them for. But I think also the political calculation changed um, very quickly from the idea that, well, let's just, you know, get on with it and we'll just let you know, Donald Trump will fade away and he'll, we'll move on and then we'll start with our, we'll get our kitchen table issues taken care of and then everything will be fine. I think there, there has come among Democrats and maybe even some Republicans, although very few by you know, by anybody's standards, but maybe a few that the, what has been unleashed here, the, the genie that's been let out of the bottle here uh, is going to have to be dealt with. They cannot pretend going forward that simply by, you know, just starting to pretend like everything's normal again. And don't worry, that was all just a bad dream. That is just not going to happen. They're going to have to walk on the two tracks. And we've talked about this a lot. They have to deliver for the people. I mean, obviously, the Democrats are going to have to deliver. They have no choice. The country is in utter chaos at this point. You know, but aside from what happened, you know, we're all going to be watching to see whether it, all 50 states have some kind of, you know, similar insurrection in the state capitals. We've also got COVID, which is spreading like wildfire. I mean, where I live in Los Angeles, I mean, we are in hell here. I mean, this is total lockdown in L.A. And, and people are dying in massive numbers. And you've got the economics are looking very, very bad at the moment. Let's, they had uh, it, yeah, I mean, just, 
Yeah, I was going to say, forgive me for interrupting, but uh, the CDC uh, today said their forecast says that we could have 90,000 people die in the next three weeks. Um, the, uh, we, like you were just about saying, we had 900, over 900,000, uh, jobless claims, which is $300,000 more, excuse me, 300,000 people more than the highest, the, the highest claims for joblessness during the great recession. So we are setting a record decade, decades, decades, maybe, well, decades in the, in, in the making here. Um, and so uh, continue, though. I mean, yes, it's it's. Well, I'm just going to say that this that the requirements of the of what is going to be required of the Democrats in Congress now that they have the majority in both houses and the Biden administration, it, it, they have to deal with these three crises at the same time, the economic crisis, the public health crisis and the crisis of democracy and this you know upsurge of right wing violence. They can't just, you know, cordon one off and say, well, we'll deal with that later because it's here whether we like it or not. I think that was part of what what was the they, they finally recognized. And I've been waiting for this for a long time, as I know you have that, you know, you're going to have to realize the real state of our country. It isn't just some abstract thing where you can come in and put, you know, put your little policy agenda together. You're going to have this is a holistic problem that is going to have to be dealt with. And it's going to take some real bold action. And and I think impeachment in a week was a fairly impressive bold action. Yeah. And I don't know what will happen now. I, I have from what I can gather from what the people like, you know, just coming out of the Biden transition team saying, we hope you can do both things at the same time, impeach and, you know, in the morning and, you know, pass my cabinet members in the afternoon or whatever, you know, that that sort of thing it indicates to me that they are at least recognizing that they're not going to be able to just say, let's let bygones be bygones and right. move ahead with the agenda. They can't do it. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, this has been wild. And I think, you know, I mean, I don't I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I've never. Oh, no, no. I mean, we're so know, far. I mean, we're so far past yeah. that, though. Right. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I mean there's like, there, there's no I, I, I um, well, I just don't think there's anybody alive who, no. you know, could come and say, you know, that we could have a conversation uh, with been, like, you know, this is this reminds me of that time. I mean, frankly, um, I on the, the majority report this week interviewed someone who had written extensively about the post. Well, the the reconstruction era and sort of the post reconstruction era. And um, that's the only time. And I spoke to Rick Perlstein last week. Uh, th that's the only era that you can find any type of similarities. The, the, the end of reconstruction largely came from a question as to who was going to be president, uh, and mm -hmm. a capitulation by the, then the, 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 you know, the radical Republicans, uh, to get the presidency, uh, basically said, okay, we're done with reconstruction. We'll take our troops out and, uh, you know, welcome. Hello, Jim Crow. Uh, and you know, the, the idea of like insurrectionists, against um largely down south uh, largely attacks on uh on on frankly uh, elected uh government officials who were predominantly black um i mean and so that was their attempt at taking back their country they were mm -hmm. pretty successful frankly um and right. this is and, and you know and you know it is um you you had cory bush on the uh floor of the house this week talking about this, um, the impeachment um, as a battle against white supremacy. And it's uh, ultimately, and, and, and there was a, she was responded to by uh, Greg Grothman, I think is his name. He is a Wisconsin um, Republican uh, lawmaker. And his response to Corey Bush's um, accusation or assessment that mm -hmm. what we saw was rooted in a white supremacy. And those people who came in there were white supremacists and they have been supporting of a white supremacist president. His response was, that is outrageous to say that. These people are not white supremacists. They're afraid of immigrants coming across the border. <laughs> they are afraid of the Democrats joining with Black Lives Matter to, you know, take over their cities. I mean, 
that that is not a that is not the strongest of of retorts. It's 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 it you know it seems to me. I would say. Um, you know, uh, I think. I, you know, one can be racist and articulate racist ideas and apparently have no idea that those ideas are racist. I mean, that's part of, you know, uh, there's many people argue we all practice uh, to some extent, uh, black people alike, uh, some measure of white supremacy in terms of the way that we perceive the value of, of white people in our society. Um, but uh, so that's, I mean, that's where we are. Um, and, the response by the Democrats, please. Can I just add one thing to the white supremacy thing? I think there's another side to this, too, that's really important. Timothy Snyder, you know, the guy, the professor, the Harvard professor, student of fascism, um, who wrote the book on tyranny when Donald Trump first came into office. He wrote a big piece in the New York Times Magazine last week. And one of the points he made about the big lie that, you know, that he thinks is, you know, really, we're now at a point where this big lie is so significant that we can actually say that it really is a precursor or perhaps just, you know, a, a foundational part of this modern fascist movement that's in the United States. He also says that's based on white supremacy. And in this case, the big lie, which is just is so horrific when you think about it, was the idea that the vote was stolen from the you know good Trump voters by these big cities that are basically full of black people. Of course. When in fact, and the reason it's the big lie in his view is that it's exactly the opposite. It's always been black people whose votes have been discounted, you know, for for the last century. So to to turn that reality, that truth of our voting system and the way that we have suppressed and disenfranchised black people, you know, since reconstruction, since they got the right to vote or black men got the right to vote um, is just, you know, it's just, it's the, it's a heinous big lie. It's up there with, you know, the worst of the big lies, which I think we know what those are. Um, and, and so that is, that, that's just another little piece of evidence, I think, that we're dealing with white supremacy. The fact that he chose Philadelphia uh, you know, Detroit, Milwaukee, these states where, you know, Atlanta, Atlanta. Um, that these are places where there are, and, and, you know, this, I don't know if Trump consciously knows this, but you know, as you just pointed out, a lot of just blatant hardcore racists really have no idea that what they're saying is just blatant hardcore racism. So I do think that, that you're right. I mean, I don't think we can, can run from that. And I saw Cori Bush, she was on uh, MSNBC yesterday too, and she was terrific. I mean, she is really, really great, and right. and I thought her point was super well taken. It's also um, it, there's there is a quality about the the complete sort of not just refusal to believe, but the 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 intensity of the disbelief. Uh, you know that they could win in in let's say a place like Georgia. I mean, let's face it; it comes from the the the, the subtext here is like. Hey, we've done a lot of work in disenfranchising black people. There is no way they could have turned out in those numbers. I mean, we we know exactly what we've been doing, and that's just not possible. Like, you know, it's it's one of those uh, uh, jobs. We had but, to have cheated because we don't let them vote. Right. We don't let those right. Vote, no, so. we have we have constructed uh, a. Um, you know, an obstacle course for every person to get to vote. And there's just no way that many people could have gone, could have run through that obstacle course, I think is the sort of like the, the, the subtext awesome. of that. But all right. So let's talk about the, um, the, the politics going forward. Uh, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> I love this, um, privately, privately mm -hmm said that uh, he felt like uh, the Democrats are doing the right thing by impeaching. Now, I know he said that privately because I read about it in the New York Times. Oh, I know. Right. And <laughs> so Maggie Haberman's here. Right. Privately. I mean, right. I mean, so uh, so let's be clear. Mitch McConnell wants the world to know that he thinks that Donald Trump is a bad guy and deserved to be impeached. Um, Mitch McConnell could agree to Chuck Schumer's demand slash request that the Senate come back into session and begin the trial. It does not appear he's going to do that, although it does appear that he's sort of like there's a certain equality of like test balloon out there because, mm -hmm. you know, and 
Uh, Lynn Cheney was one of the probably the most powerful Republican. I think she's number three or four in the Republican leadership in the House. Came out uh, for impeachment. Um, I'm not going to say anything good about her uh, because I think that would be there's no way I could express what the net value of her leadership it could be. But um, she did come out for this. She found it in her, her political interests. She is making a bet. And part of that bet is predicated on how many options she has, right? Like, I mean, it's a little late in the game now to become a Trumpista. And so uh, you might as well go and see if you can garner some credit on the other side. It certainly worked for people like Steve Schmidt. Uh, and other uh, never Trumpers, let's put it that way. I mean, they've they've uh, late for that. Yes. And so um, uh, so uh, she came out and I and I can't help but think that McConnell's basically just looking and seeing what's happening, like how, you know, where is the greatest price he will pay? Will it be in um, in 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 actually enabling impeachment? Or will it be in not distancing himself enough from Donald Trump? I mean, that is what he is assessing at the moment. And so folks should not make any mistake here. Uh, Mitch McConnell enabled this man for over four years. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, people, the, the origin story of Donald Trump is uh, if you tell, uh, he said to Barack Obama, if you tell people about uh, Russian influence in this election, I'm going to make you pay a, a huge political price for it. I'm going to politicize the hell out of it. And so, um, and, and, and that is just simply a fact, regardless of whether you think that um, Russian uh, interference or influence or whatever had anything to do with, with Donald Trump's election. It, uh, you know, there was some there and Mitch McConnell didn't want it to be made public um, and has been enabling Donald Trump throughout this entire process, regardless of whether they get along or don't get along. I don't care whether they did. It doesn't matter. They got along where it mattered uh, in terms of like imposing uh, horrible policy on this country and appointing hundreds of judges who are going to dictate um, uh, people's rights and the relationship between people and corporations for decades. So uh, the real question is, um, you know, once you get that out of the way and again, Schumer and others have said, we can do both. We can have the trial. Even when uh, Trump is gone, we can have the trial. I imagine they'll do it rather quietly at that point uh, and focus on the agenda that they're trying to pu push through. I can't help but think, and this is where you and I, it's like, on some level, it's just like a big, big, long track. And we've just circled around. We did the quarter mile and we're back at where we started when we started jogging. Because you and I have been talking specifically about, really, in many respects, Joe Biden going in and giving the store away to Republicans mm -hmm. for about 10 years now. I think almost exactly 10 years. In fact, I spoke to Adam Gentleson this week on the Majority Report, who was uh, Harry Reid's chief, uh, deputy chief of staff, back when Joe Biden did an end run around Harry Reid when we were facing the fiscal cliff and the sunsetting of the of the of the Bush tax cuts, um, and they were trying to strike a grand bargain. So here's my question to you. When we hear this talk of Joe Biden talking about unity, simultaneously we know that Chris Coons is calling for, you know, the expulsion of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, which he wouldn't be doing without Biden's uh, support. But when we hear this talk of unity and we see Mitch McConnell sort of like, you know, express this private public thought, are we watching the shadow of an attempt to negotiate on some type of uh, COVID response? Like, you know, like what, what's going on with with that dynamic, knowing that the 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 Biden administration has said we could use um, uh, reconciliation or we could not use reconciliation? Like what? Give me a sense of, of what your sense is about what's happening, you know, that we can't see. Well, that's a that's a super interesting question. And there was some um, reporting this week that Biden wanted to make a first push to try and get bipartisan support for a big relief bill um, and that they were going to try try and go there first. And everybody's reaction, I think, to that was, OK, you know, you've got a week 
<laughs> maybe try and pull that one together. But really, let's not be, you know, any idea of some, I mean, remember how long Obamacare took to negotiate, right? Or even the stimulus, I think when they came in, what, it was at least a month or something that they had to do that. And it was, they were kind of negotiating with themselves on that. So, uh, you know, I don't know what will happen with that, but everybody I think understands uh, that it is urgent, um, that they have to, COVID relief, there's nothing more impo immediately important than that. It has to be done. And so, um, you know, I think uh, it's possible that what you say is true. I, I, they have been speaking. We know that, that Biden and McConnell have spoken because Biden was reported to have asked him, McConnell, could you do impeachment and something else on a, on a double track at the same time? And McConnell was reported to have told him, well, let me check with the parliamentarian and I'll get back to you. So they're talking. Uh, what they're talking about, we don't know. I mean, the bigger political picture for... for what should say, when he says, can I talk to the parliamentarian, that's like when the salesman at the car dealership says, oh, well, I got to go back and talk to my manager and see if we can get you that air conditioning on there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, let me go see what I can do. You know, right. that kind of thing. But, um, but it was, it does mean that they're actually communicating. They're on the, they're on the horn talking to each other. So we don't know what that's about, but, you know, we can assume that there is some discussion. They've known each other for a long time. Now, McConnell really does have, I mean, he's, he's doing something uh, totally predictable for him. The, the bigger thing for the Republicans that happened last week was not, the 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 uh, you know the Capitol riot the Trump insurrection it was the it was the election in Georgia right. <laughs> that, that changed everything and McConnell is no longer in charge of the thing now one thing to keep in mind is that McConnell is a very 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 in fact he's better at being a uh, in the in the opposition than he is in the majority. He is a very good obstructionist. I think you could ask anybody in the Obama administration just how good he is. He's very good at doing that and they know that and they know that he has that capability. But McConnell's also in the process of trying to reconstitute the Republican party without Trump being the entire you know, package, which isn't an easy thing to do. He needs to get back to his you know, good old you know, all American Republican, you know, he's got he's got a lot of pressure coming from corporate America. And that's a huge part of this as well, is that they're suddenly balking. They don't like what they're seeing. McConnell's got to reel those people back in. So to answer your question, it is possible that because of all of that, because of the loss of the majority, because of the craziness that the explosion on the right uh, and the need to kind of reel in corporate America back into the into the good graces, which will happen inevitably anyway. But I'm just, you know, in the near term, they need to do that, settle them down a little bit. You know, it's not impossible for me to believe that on COVID, which means money and help and vaccination, getting the vaccination program going, that we could have a moment, you know, a honeymoon moment, as it right. were. And they could potentially pass something that's actually fairly good. I would also say that we should be very happy for that and thankful for it and don't expect it to happen again because the Republicans, whether Joe Biden thinks that this is a new dawn for American bipartisanship, it isn't because Mitch McConnell is still in charge of the Republican caucus and we've got a, a load of total nuts over in the House and none of that is going to go away and neither are these crazies that are out there in the country trying to, you know, blow up, you know, state houses if that's what they're going to kidnap governors or whatever. So here's here's how I think this could play out, you know, sort of building on the scenario that you've just sort of suggested, because I do think that if Mitch McConnell is trying to distinguish, you know, is trying to sort of build a new Republican Party. And, and, and I want people to understand in the way that I'm saying that if I'm not putting quotes around the new, uh, just understand they're understood. Um, but he's basically trying to do a. Republican Party without Trump. And he is, I think, really, the audience, it's best understood at this juncture, when we're two years out from a midterm election, that his audience is um, 
is Chuck Todd. It's Jake Tapper. It's it right. is it is the, the the Beltway media who who in many respects are desperate to get back to sort of some measure of normalcy. And so Mitch McConnell has to show that he is not Donald Trump, that he is uh, that the Republican Party has not become a bunch of raving lunatics like, frankly, they have. Um, I'm sorry, there's just no way around that. So he um, he he leaks that he's in favor of impeachment. That's a point in his favor amongst those people. He's trying to bring things back to normal. Uh, but he can't he can't hold uh, the impeachment hearings, but he will not uh, impede them uh, as they happen uh, when when they return. In fact, he's not going to impede. Now, he cannot impede uh, Joe Biden's uh, nominees. He cannot impede um, any judicial picks, as it were. I mean, he could slow things down a little bit, but, you know, at least initially, he's probably not too worried about that because there's going to be a lot on the plate for the Senate between the impeachment and the um, and the covid. Um, and so he he says to uh, Biden, yeah, OK, I'll 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 go along with this. But does he have control over Ted Cruz? Does he have control over, um, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, Rand Paul? Does he have control over Josh Hawley? Does he have control over Tom Cotton? Uh, or Ben Sass. I mean, some of these people are out there and they're going to want to basically start to run for 2024. And they're going to want to, you know, there's a look, there's only so many things you can run on in the Republican Party. and There's not a lot left. Right. I mean, like there's no room for tax cuts right now now that nobody's going to accept that. Um, you're going to you're going to try and push fiscal austerity on some level and you're going to keep following this notion of like, we're not going to bail out blue state governors or whatever it is, but that's about it. Right. I mean, they, you know, they're going to talk about the deficit. There's not a huge, you know, deficit sort of anti-deficit hawkery hunger out there. There's not a lot of things for them to run on except for against Mitch McConnell, <laughs> frankly, uh, who is the establishment Republican. He's, he's not particularly liked amongst uh, Republicans and to run with essentially Donald Trump, which would be to be upset at the Republican establishment. So in other words, Mitch McConnell says to Joe Biden, okay, but can he really deliver, um, you know, the, the 10 Republican senators, to, excuse me, the 15 Republican senators that you 16, you would need to, to beat a filibuster. Um, you know, that could be done by a couple of uh, members of his caucus who are decided like I'm hated. You know, Ted Cruz is like, you know, Lindsey Graham said a couple of years ago, like you could commit, you could kill Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and no one would vote to convict. <laughs> I mean, so there's um, there's some agendas there that may not be cohesive enough for Mitch McConnell to deliver the obstruction in the way that he used to, particularly in light of the changes to the filibuster. And, you know, so maybe then Biden goes to reconciliation. I, I would hope. And just to be clear for people to understand, reconciliation, there is a special type of privileged legislation. The requirements are it must affect the, 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 the government budget, but that's a pretty big, um, that can be a bunch of things. $15 minimum wage arguably is affecting the government budget because it impacts taxes. But let's say fixing the Voting Rights Act. No. Um, but with reconciliation, you get one bite at the apple per fiscal year. But within these two years, by just hook or crook, there's actually three fiscal year opportunities to do it. So they would get three bites at the apple for massive legislation in terms of spending. If McConnell can't deliver the um, unified bill, uh, we could see reconciliation. Uh, but McConnell's going to pretend like he really is interested in it and 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 play that up in the same way like he privately wants to do impeachment, but he's not going to do right, anything publicly right. for it. And probably knowing that, you know, I mean, maybe he can. I think you're right. And I hadn't actually considered the the, um, you know, the the countervailing force 
of the Hollies and the, the cruises and various other, you know, really hardcore. I mean, there were some people involved in this stuff over the last week, like Lankford of Oklahoma, Kennedy of Louisiana, even, even people like Cornyn in Texas, you know, who they had previously, they were kind of loudmouth sometimes. I mean, well, Kennedy was anyway, but you know, you thought that they had some sort of semblance of, you know, their own sense of dignity about who they were as statesmen or some such. No, I mean, they are totally willing. And I don't think it had as much to do with Trump personally as it had to do with feeling, you know, wanting to be associated on some level with this energy that is happening on the in the right wing and for those who have higher per, higher ambitions that could be a very you know they they don't want to they certainly don't want to alienate that right. if they're you know, if they're going to be running if they're going to be running for president and they all are you know i mean i wouldn't be they're going to have 20 people running just like the democrats did this time so you're right that does that that is something and so mcconnell is probably trying to balance this and he's trying to juggle this in a way to, to, to find a way so that he can, well, basically, have, you know, play both sides. And he may be just waiting to see how it all shakes out, because I don't think anybody knows at the moment just where, you know, what's going to happen with Trump, how much influence he's going to have once he's lost his platforms, you know, when he's not in your face every day, do people still have the same kind of, you know, sense of identification with him? But I would just ask you something else here. When you have, you've got Joe Biden with three bites at the reconciliation apple, with which to do some pretty big things. Remember yep. Obamacare on, on reconciliation. And there are some, some things on the agenda out there that are pretty big that, ha that have to do with a lot of money that if, if he had to, he could theoretically do it. But I will just ask you what you think about, you know, there's some other people out there who have some uh, ambitions of their own, you know, or at least some idea of themselves as, you know, the, the veto point, like Joe Manchin, you know, like Chris Coons. Like, so now, Chris Coons, I should take out of the equation because he's Biden's guy and he'll, he'll follow that. But there are others like him. And we don't know yet some of the new people. I mean, it could be Mark Kelly down in Arizona or Kirsten Cinema or yeah. some of the others. So, you know, we have the potential here for, for Biden to be hamstrung himself in the same way that McConnell is hamstrung by his own centrist, moderate, you know, right-leaning Democrats right. in that very narrow majority, which what then brings in is that the group that has the real influence is Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and, and that whole crew. We've talked about that before. So that's the other thing that we have to keep in mind. You know, right. we're focusing on the Senate. The House majority is very narrow as well. Um, and it doesn't seem, I mean, just judging from the impeachment thing that just happened this week and what we've seen since the election, Pelosi may not have as much trouble keeping that crew together <laughs> as we might have thought. They seem to be you know, so well, far, any, you know, I, I, assuming that he doesn't go too right wing because the progressives will run if that happens. Well, I think, you know, frankly, the key is going to be, you know, just we said earlier that Mitch McConnell is sort of like trying to figure out how much of a price he will pay to distance himself too much from Donald Trump. I mean, this is the the dynamic that is going to be, I think, key, not just for the for the Republicans, but also for the Democrats on some level, which is. How much can the Republicans actually distance themselves from Donald Trump? You know, Mitch McConnell can say that he's distanced from, from Donald Trump, but if Donald Trump is out there and is, you know, particularly if he's not convicted in the Senate, if he can run, I don't think he's going to, but if he can run, that means that he becomes like sort of the de facto kingmaker. And so he's going to hang in there for two or three months, uh, two or three years. Like, maybe I'll run, maybe I won't run. Although, you know, I sort of like Ben Sass, but he was sort of mean to me. So I sort of like Josh Hawley. I don't know. I need to see what they're going to do, you know, like that type of thing. And, yeah, and he's still going to theoretically have his people. So I think the Republicans are, you know, going to sort of make their determinations on that as well. I think the Democrats are too. I mean, I think like, the it's really a question of how much do does the Biden administration use Donald Trump as a 
a mechanism to create co cohesion amongst Democrats, right? I mean, that's what we saw with the impeachment. It was the right. actions of the right that, that, you know, that made us like, whoa, they did that quick. And Cori Bush is up there and, you know, she's people. We don't see, you know, Nancy Pelosi attacking Cori Bush in the way that they did Ilhan Omar, you know, in that first week of, of Congress or whatever it was, you know, in, in 2018. And so, you know, it's funny. I, I mentioned I was talking to Jet Linson, who has written a book about the um, about the uh, the filibuster. And mm -hmm. um, I said, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to get filibuster reform, obviously, because we only have 51 votes. And Joe Manchin has already said he's not going to do it. And he said, look, everybody who's ever voted to get rid of the filibuster, we got rid of it at judicial appointments. Um, you know, on the Democratic side, uh, you know, up to the Supreme Court on the the Republicans got rid of it uh, for the Supreme Court, got rid of um, uh, filibuster for conf confirmees. Um, that was done by Democrats. He said everybody who voted for that had said that they wouldn't vote for that at mm -hmm. one time or another. And he said, mm -hmm. if there's anybody who could convince Joe Manchin to vote away the filibuster, it would be Joe Biden because Joe Biden is such an institutionalist. And so if Joe oh. Biden comes down and says, I think, you know, this is a sort of a, a Nixon to China moment, right? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and then the other, the irony is, is that you get rid of the filibuster and Joe Manchin is essentially president of the United States. Right. And, right. and at one point, Joe Manchin may realize that, like mm -hmm. you know, with the filibuster, he is vote number 16 or 17 that you got to get. Right. But if there's a if there's no filibuster, Joe Manchin is vote number one that you must you must secure. And at one point, somebody's going to he's going to realize this and mm -hmm. I'll be like, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, like, uh, but <laughs> very interested in Joe Manchin Civic Center in West Virginia <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is. And um uh, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, if that happens. I mean, the, the funny thing is, if there is a filibuster and the story becomes about Republican obstruction and it becomes about Trumpista obstruction, right? And they have to move to reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, it's not as dangerous for Joe Manchin to be associated with that crew, but maybe it is. Maybe, well, may, but maybe it is. I mean, it's it's. It is, let's put it this way. If the story is about Republican obstruction, it's harder for Joe Manchin to hold out and not vote with the Democrats in reconciliation, it seems oh, to me. Oh, yeah. Then, that's a, then, I, then if the filibuster doesn't exist and he feels for the, for the sake of the country, he needs to represent you know, the people who might not like this. Joe Manchin, for all of his faults, and he has many, he's not my guy, I don't care. I don't think he wants to be with Josh Hawley. I, right. I mean, I've gotten nothing from him ever really i mean he he's you know he is a centrist down the way at best kind of actually right-leaning democrat but he's not in that kind of wild you know sort of chaotic sort of school that just isn't who he is and i think you're right and it will be up to the republican uh, to the democrats to ensure that they frame that kind of obstruction mm properly and i don't know whether or not they're going to be able to do it although when you think about it joe biden is not going to want to you know he's going to want to keep the you know the good republicans supposedly on his side so maybe having that enemy in there as the face of republican obstruction is going to be useful to him to keep the democrats together i mean i you know i don't know i mean i don't know what schumer's doing in all this presumably not much, but checking in with Wall Street and making sure they're okay with whatever he wants to do. Right. Um, but, you know, other than that, I'm not quite sure where, where he stands. But I mean, this is really going to be the Senate, I think, is going to be the Senate majority leader to all intents and purposes is going to be Joe Biden, not Chuck Schumer. I mean, I, I, they, that's just not that that's not separable and and biden that's his institution so i think he's going to feel ownership of that he did when he was vice president right they would send him down for the screw up you know whatever negotiations harry reid had done so yep. schumer better be aware of because right. biden likes to meddle so uh in closing 
Where are we going to be in a week? Um, I mean, Joe Biden is scheduled to be inaugurated. Um, I get, is it six days from now? Yeah. On January 20th? Um, yeah. I feel like I'm going to pass out. But um, uh, so, I mean, honestly, like, I feel like we could, I could say we're going to get reports of maybe um, violence at multiple state capitals around the country, uh, maybe one which may lead to a death somewhere or not. I don't think that we're going to see any violence uh, in Washington, D.C., because we've got 10,000 troops there and or more at this point, National Guardsmen. And I think people are, are, are skittish there, but I think state capitals are in jeopardy. We will know, obviously, I think it's unlikely that there'll be a Senate trial before then. Um, but I, I guess we will get a better sense of how this is all just going to be shaking out to start um, the, the Biden presidency. But we will also unlikely have had, I would imagine, out of the next six or seven days, at least three or four, maybe more of days where we have over 4,000 people dead from COVID. I think that we are probably a couple of weeks away from uh, quasi-national lockdowns, uh, frankly, because I think Joe Biden's going to come out and I would not be surprised if he says like the month of February, write it off, folks. We're just going to, we're going to, we got to slow this down because of the new, um, the new uh, variant of COVID too. And we're just, the only, you can, you leave your house to get a uh, shot and that's about it. I don't know. Have I left anything else? I don't think so. I mean, you know, we're looking, the, the economic uh, meltdown is here. As we pointed out earlier, they had 900 and some thousand new jobless claims this past week. I mean, that's unbelievable considering how far we are into this. But yeah, I mean, we're still in the middle of this. And like I said at the beginning, it's three, we've got three terrible crises happening at once, economic, public health, and the crisis of our, of our you know, the right-wing extremism. And they're all kind of exploding at the same time. So, you know, good luck, Joe. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'll be looking forward to the inauguration and just hoping that he's got enough good people around him that uh, they can tackle all this at once. It's daunting. It's really daunting. Yep. Well, uh, Heather, as always a pleasure. And uh, until next week, uh, we will find out more. Thanks for having me, Sam. Heather Parton is a weekly contributor to ring of fire radio. You can find her writings over at salon.com and the Uber blog hullabaloo. Now let's hand over the show to our new ring of fire co-host, Emma Viglin. Emma. Thanks, Sam. I'm here with Angelo Curasone, the president of Media Matters, who's here to discuss things involving media and also tech, which uh, seems to have been in the news uh, recently since, obviously, President Trump was permanently banned from Twitter. How are you, Angelo? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, as, as well yeah, as can yeah. be expected in these right. times. <laughs> you know, we discussed that before the interview. Uh, just little things, little wins are so it's amplified. True. And then when things go wrong, uh, that's amplified as well during uh, COVID-19 time. So uh, let's just jump right to it. Trump's Twitter ban. Um, I know that Media Matters has talked a lot about the dangers of um, – right-wing media and the space that we're currently occupying, which is just constant conspiracy peddling, and it just gets worse and worse and is more amplified. And obviously, President Trump was a huge purveyor of that kind of dangerous misinformation, which led to the insurrection in the Capitol. I think there are a lot of complex questions, but let's just start broadly uh, there. Big picture, what we're experiencing right now is the inevitable consequence of the cauldron of essentially extremism and lies that the right-wing media has been proliferating. And, um, you know, they've, they've had an advantage on radio for a while. Um, and then obviously Fox News has given them another, had given them another boost. And as people started consuming more on social media, that ended up becoming the dominant narrative. And my one data point for that is, you know, if you look at last year, um, there was not a single day where the right wing did not consume, just if you look at share of voice on Facebook, 
um, where the where right wing content did not consume more than uh, I mean less than fifty percent of the entire share of voice. Every day, on average, they had between fifty five and sixty five percent of the share of voice, and the rest was split between the left and news. Even though news content like had five times as much. Um, so they basically defined the narrative, and most of that was QAnon and, and, and pro-Trump lies. Yeah, and, and can you explain to our listeners and viewers why that is? Because there's a lot of talk about the algorithm and how it feeds into right-wing misinformation, um, and why there's so much more right-wing misinformation, why that feeds upon itself. I think that anecdotally, Facebook is the number one culprit in this kind of radicalization and conspiracy peddling if i was to pick one of the big giants would you say that's a fair assessment i think that's totally fair um you know the average growth rates for a, a news page on facebook is 0.7 the average growth rate for a left-leaning page is about one percent uh for right pa- right-leaning pages is three percent for QAnon pages before they were finally banned were 24 percent growth rates Whoa. and we know yes and we know that <laughs> more that the majority of signups of new signups for pages is actually the result of Facebook's own recommendations, which meant that they were literally recruiting people to participate and engage in QAnon for a six month stretch last year. So that, you know, that, that trend of, of seemingly QAnon getting more and more reach and attention was, you know, it, it lined up nearly perfectly with their growth on Facebook. So I, I think your, your anecdote is, is dead, right. It's backed up by the data. It's backed up by all of our experience. It might have been an anecdote informed by data that I just forgot, which is why I'm there talking to an expert. <laughs> um, so what the only thing that troubles me about, you know, say Trump's ban from all these social media platforms, right, is that these companies are so massive and so powerful that banning somebody from these platforms is effectively silencing a part of them. Now it's because they violated the terms of service. Trump obviously sp- spewed hate speech, uh, instigated an insurrection, which resulted in the, in the death of, of five people. I mean, the, the, you're not going to get a defense for, uh, uh, of Trump from me. But what I always come back to is the antitrust element of this. Is The only reason the right wing is able to make a case that there is a free speech element here is because these companies are already so massive. And so it does... Allow for them to say, well, if I can't speak on these massive platforms, where do I go? Can you talk about the role of, I guess, our government in making these or allowing these companies to become so large? And if you kind of agree with what I'm talking about there about the need to break them up, even, you know, you don't need to say that if, it, if it's in conflict, conflict with Media Matters' position, but just curious about your thoughts there. No, I, I think we have to be really careful about this. Um, you know, sometimes you know, a combination of something being appropriate um, and also schadenfreude shouldn't distract from what this actually means for all of us. And I, I think back to something that took place in 2017, um, you know, right after the 2016 election, there was all the attacks on the platforms, rightfully so, for the distribution of fake news. And, and Facebook did this massive crackdown on what they considered fake news sites and pages. Um, and actually, the the two biggest pages, types of pages that were affected during that crackdown were um, were uh, uh, police accountability pages. Uh, so uh, and also uh, a lot of groups that focused on on issues related to black women, um, and they were sort of swept up in that purge. Um, and you know, and Facebook was applauded for it. But when you started to get into the details, they hit them as fake news and distributors of of spammy content, and that obviously wasn't true. And um, and that's a lesson I think from my perspective in what this current moment means. So. It, it, to me, it is a reflection of just how powerful and instrumental they are. And I think to underscore that, uh, you know, look at what's happening to Parler right now. I'm not a defender of Parler. They're disgusting and awful. But um, let's see. Apple sent a letter to uh, Parler uh, to tell them they need to clean up their act, even though Facebook, we have, I mean, we have the receipts. Like the January 6th, 6th event was planned on Facebook. They didn't get a letter from Apple saying you needed to clean up your act, right? Um, right. And so... Uh, and I think when you start to un- when you start to look at it, there's a lot of there's a lot of inconsistencies across the board. And so for me, I think ultimately it's this: um, this is a reckoning for how much power and influence they actually do have. It's an illustration of how they can break their own rules, which they were doing. They weren't enforcing their own terms of service for the longest time either against Trump and things like this. 
Um, and then because of some pressure and arbitrary reasons, in this case, seemingly arbitrary, right, is that the circumstances got so significant that they felt they had to, they picked a couple of targets and, and knocked them offline. Um, but it, and, it, and they get applauded for it. So I, I, I think it is a reflection of how powerful they are. And I would just say that um, it is, it, it is an, I think, a reminder that we need to, to take action, not just to uh, sort of reset their power in some way, but also to, to provide places for us to hold them accountable along the way. There were activists and researchers pointing out all these problems for years. And if there was just a tiny bit of accountability that you could deploy against them um, in the consumer lane, you would have actually seen state attorney generals taking action that I think would have forced them to put in place countermeasures that would have prevented this from ever happening, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of this did result from here. I'll, I'll give you my cynical take and my optimistic take. Right. So uh, there was a lot of pressure internally. This is the optimistic one from, I believe, Google employees with um, th their employees em imploring uh, the executives to take action on this front. So, mm -hmm. okay, that means that the employees who are recognizing the dangers and the harm that this is causing are having more of a voice. The cynical take is, well, this happened as soon as Democrats took control of the presidency and took back the Senate and uh, have control of the House. The Democrats aren't, they don't have a monopoly over, or, I'll put it this way. Republicans take way more corporate money. They take a lot more corporate money. And so there's a reason Tucker Carlson focuses, say, on big tech's connection to Democrats, because that's the one industry where it's true. Democrats do have uh, take a lot more money from big tech mm -hmm. executives and companies like that. Um, so which one do you think it is? And do you think it's a little bit of both, which is kind of my assessment? It's a, look, it's a little bit of both. I think the I think the political landscape informs the obviously the events, but also it informs the consequences that they can face. Um, and I think they understood full well that if they didn't take really aggressive, proactive measures, um, that it would create political fodder for them to be a target and uh, that it would be a lot easier um, uh, or there'd be a lot less friction uh, for elected officials to 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 hold them accountable for all the things that took place, especially after they had noticed. I mean, a lot of this isn't about them holding the people accountable for what happened on the 6th, right? They're trying to, to do everything they can to prevent some form, some next thing, because they know how reckless they were, because they, and they know that they would ultimately be responsible. And, um, you know, I think we've already had plenty of examples of this with the reopen events, with COVID misinformation. Um, and then obviously what was happening in Kenosha, that was organized on Facebook. That was a militia group. Yeah. organized on Facebook. Um, and so like, we knew this, like, so I, I think the political landscape actually is like the foundation for, uh, uh, for these circumstances. And, you know, they're, they're, they get it and they understand that the politics will, will are shifting as is the, the balance of power. And this gives them the ability to at least present the idea and the notion that they can be worked with and don't require more heavy, regulatory means and, and, and pressure. Um, I just think that, that it, I don't think I think it's impossible to divorce that reality from it. It's all about power. Right. I mean, it is kind of a sugar high, right? Uh, Kamala Harris, even in the presidential primary, was talking about how she would ban Trump from Twitter. That was one of her um, points that I think fell flat. But it was a big uh, it was a big uh, she made a big to do about it during the debate. Um, banning yeah. Trump from Twitter isn't enough. Banning people like Steve Bannon, who I was reading, you know, the packet put together about some of the things that you and Media Matters had been had been uh, working on. That's not enough either, because all of these things, they, they can't exist on a case by case basis. There has to be substantive change in the way business is done. But let's talk about Steve Bannon a little bit there, because I sure. thought he yeah. was I thought he was banned. But yet he had only a temporarily. I know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. I mean, he had a show called what? The War Room on YouTube that the was basically now banned, I guess. Uh who knows, he could reemerge. He seems to do that uh too often. He was talking about revolution, comparing the Trump supporters who were about to storm the Capitol to the revolutionaries back uh, in 1776, which I've heard that date way more often uh than I thought I would based on or that year uh based on right-wing uh, obsession. So can you talk about how he was able to 
continue on with his hate speech and how he was given a platform again in the first place? His show was enormous and it was so big. He had so many listeners. Um, that's one of the advantages of being on YouTube, just like Alex Jones used to have a ton more listeners when he was on YouTube, um, which then let him harass the Sandy Hook families. Right. And, uh, you know, so he had a ton of listeners. I mean, he re- he was bigger than most CNN shows, uh, almost all CNN shows. And, and certainly it sometimes even reached parity with Fox programming. I mean, that's how many listeners he would have and viewers. Um, and mostly what he did is, you know, he was on the, on the air for hours a day, four or five hours a day, just Steve Bannon wow. and his little crew talking. And the narrative that they were spinning was that the election was stolen. Um, they would pr- promote that idea. And then he would talk very consistently about, you know, with certitude and confidence that Trump was going to remain president, that it was all going to come down to January 6th, January 20th, January 6th, January 20th. He would explain that this sort of the arcane procedures. He, he was one of the biggest boosters of the idea that, that Pence could overturn the election through these procedural moves. Um, and, uh, and then obviously he had, he had previously called for violence, obviously against uh, Dr. Fauci and Christopher Ray. He said they should be beheaded, uh, which got him a suspension. Um, he, um, and then to me, I think there are two examples I think really stick out. One is, uh, you know, he talked a lot about the revolutionary and sort of the need to really go there. Uh, and that was something he repeated a lot in December, but there was something he said on January 6th that I think is really damning. Um, and that was right before the events, uh, the people sort of started to riot. He said, people need to ask themselves that are there. Have you done everything you possibly can for Donald Trump? Have you gone far enough? Have you put it all on the line? And he was re- he was re- and we know that people at the event were actually quoting Steve Bannon, because one of the things that Steve Bannon said is that you have to take these people's heads and put them on pikes in order to send example to all the others. And one of the people at the event, one of the, the guys screaming, said, well, we have to run in there. We have to put their heads on pikes. I mean, he was quoting what Bannon was saying. So there was obviously, you know, in a weird way, if you think who is the intellectual force behind this, I can't believe I'll associate that with him, but I think that's a fair descriptor. It was well, him. the media was, seemed to yeah. call him, you know, this genius back in the day. So you're you're borrowing from them for this for this. Yeah, moment. there yeah. you go. I'll blame them for yeah. it. <laughs> Um, but so it was right. Yeah. And it was fair. It was fair. It was a fair hit because after then he then continued to do cleanup and push the idea that it was Antifa. Then he hosted Giuliani um, and they were trying to rationalize it uh, as a as sort of an acceptable action. Um, and I think he was laying the groundwork actually for violence that we would have seen on inauguration day, sort of holding out hope that there was one more chance to make sure that Trump wouldn't get unfairly taken out of office. I mean, this is part and parcel of his ideology, right, which is this kind of old school militant, uh, bloody perspective on nationalism. Um, that is this, right. this crazy romanticism of violence and, and overthrow and authoritarianism that's inherent in this current iteration of Republican politics. I mean, it was always probably where it was going to go based on the trajectory. But people like Bannon, they've um, they've expedited it, obviously. They have. Yeah, he's an accelerationist. And, you know, the theory that, you know, they have the theory of change that he operates under is if you can just scare everybody else enough, if you could just rattle them enough, then they'll go back, they'll put they'll duck in cover because most people want that sense of normalcy. And, you know, we're fighting for a cause that some of us are willing to die for. Um, and they're not. They're just, you know, they'll break. And we just have to show that force. And, you see that that not that idea consistently playing out now. Um, you know all this talk about the the you know the the these threats to state capitals and also to to the inauguration. You know they the theory there is that if we could just get four thousand people with guns is what they're saying. Four thousand patriots and we march into the streets. Like what are they going to do? They're going to run. Um, and so that is the hope that they hold out for is this revisionist romanticized history and this idea that if we could just scare them. Um, we'll win. Let's, uh, for our last section of this topic uh, in this interview, let's bring it back to the OGs, the, the Fox News of the world. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the, they are just continuing to try to hold on to what's left of the, their audience. I mean, Trump has almost kind of oddly broken up the right wing media apparatus in a way. So it's hard to yeah. focus on one enemy. Um, which is difficult. But Fox still makes clowns of themselves all the time. So they 
were trying to spread this misinformation about the video that was circulating about the Trump supporters who were storming the Capitol, the insurrectionists, um, when there was a chant that said, hang Mike Pence. Can you talk about the Fox News coverage surrounding this? The biggest thing, so Fox's coverage has sort of been a fewfold. One, um, initially, you know, the tech stuff immediately gave them something to pivot to. So now it's as if the events at the Capitol have never happened. Um, but in the initial moments, the the two biggest narratives were, um, one, they, they were really convinced about infiltration. And so all of the examples that they would point to was the idea that Antifa was there. So they would do the standard thing that you do for climate change or anything else. You start with doubt, Right. Um, and so the day of, they were already pushing, you, you know, Laura Ingram called into Fox before the Capitol had even been restored and started to blame Antifa. She said she had heard from intelligence officials that it was Antifa, that they had infiltrated the groups. And, um, and to me, that would have been the more damaging line uh, if it would have stuck because it would have given the Fox audience and the right wing media the idea that they need to go out and, and hunt liberals um, and, you know, and Antifa. And, uh, so that's been the, the biggest piece is early on, it was doubt. Um, and then it sort of shifted a little bit. And the part to me that's excited about the hang Mike Pence thing is that they, they've used that as a cudgel against the tech platforms. They've sort of pretended, uh, you know, in the last couple of days, at least, that it had nothing to do with the Trump supporters at all. And they keep repeating on refrain that hang Mike Pence has been trending on Twitter how can the tech platforms say that we're violent? Never mind the fact that it was one of their people at the event that I was trying to get Mike Pence. Um, they were making it seem like it was actually the hang Mike Pence narrative has been is actually liberals calling for Mike Pence to be hung. And I think that is, uh, to me, the one that really jumps out is a blaming of Antifa and then also the uh, the other piece around how they've sort of distorted what actually took place with the noose um, to make it an attack on the, on the tech platform. So they've repackaged that symbol of extremism and violence into something uh, that it that it actually isn't at all. It's it's a good a good example of how they can bend reality. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why and don't know how I can still be amazed at their ability to immediately change the conversation and, and coalesce behind a specific narrative. Right. So um, the the Antifa thing, it didn't stick because everybody could no. see with their plain eyes that these were Trump supporters. Um so they that's right. On to exactly what you're saying. And like the idea that Fox is against corporate power and big tech having some actual uh, power in it, it, it's so laughable. But it's like they're co-opting the language of populism, but just for one specific industry because it affects right wing culture. Yeah. And I think that's something that that the left as a whole needs to be mindful about. I mean, before all of this craziness you know, part of the thing that put the $2,000 stimulus checks back on the table for people was that, you know, Trump had called for it. And then Fox had repeatedly echoed the need for Congress to act. Um, And even though they talked about how much they hated government handouts, you know, they said this is an important thing. People deserve it. They, They never would be in favor of that if anything, one other than Trump called for it. And I think it's an example where, um, they have so much power that not only can they push people to persuasive power to, to, to work against their own interests or see things that not the way they are, but to so rapidly and abruptly do a, an about face on something yeah. that they had been fighting against for months. And, um, you know, the, to me, what aggravated me is those, they used they kept calling those things, those the Trump checks, you know, all the chirons would refer to them as, you know, proposed Trump checks, you know, and they gave him full credit for it in addition to embracing it. And that helped build more political support amongst Republicans for it. And uh, it's, you know, they can they can do they have an enormous amount of persuasive power in addition to influence. And I think that's the part that's a little scary is not just that they're going to, you know, simultaneously co-opt populist critiques of the left in a very disingenuous way. But that simultaneously, their plan would be to coalesce as the voice of the opposition. Um, And in some ways, they're going to be hitting Biden from the left, um, not as much as they hit him from the right, uh, but they are going to start hitting him from from the left as as well. Yeah. I mean, when you're an authoritarian, you just follow the leader. And Trump said $2,000 checks and they said, "Okay, that's fine. Yeah, Yeah, like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, Angelo Curason, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Have a good one. 
That's it for another week of Ring of Fire. Are you still subscribed to the free show? Well, head over to rofpodcast.com and support this program by becoming a member. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can watch our videos on YouTube. You can go to ringoffireradio.com to find out more. Check out my daily show, The Majority Report. Head over to majority.fm for my daily live stream. Covering all the biggest news stories of the day and doing in-depth interviews I know you will enjoy. Emma, of course, co-hosts that with me. For Emma Vigland and Heather Parton, I'm Sam Cedar. This has been Ring of Fire.